This is Chapter Twenty Seven of The Boy's Life of Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Boy's Life of Mark Twain by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter Twenty Seven An Innocent Abroad and Home Again. It was early in May, the sixth, that Mark Twain had delivered his Cooper Union lecture and a month later, June 8, 1867, he sailed on the Quaker City with some sixty-six other pilgrims on the great Holy Land excursion, the story of which has been so fully and faithfully told in The Innocents Abroad. What a wonderful thing it must have seemed in that time for a party of excursionists to have a ship all to themselves to go a-gypsying in from port to port of antiquity and romance. The advertised celebrities did not go none of them but Mark Twain. But no one minded presently, for Mark Twain's sayings and stories kept the company sufficiently entertained, and sometimes he would read aloud to his fellow-passengers from the newspaper letters he was writing, and invite comment and criticism. That was entertainment for them, and it was good for him, for it gave him an immediate audience, always inspiring to an author. Furthermore, the comments offered were often of the greatest value, especially suggestions from one Mrs. Fairbanks of Cleveland, a middle-aged cultured woman, herself a correspondent for her husband's paper, The Herald. It requires not many days for acquaintances to form on shipboard, and in due time a little group gathered regularly each afternoon to hear Mark Twain read what he had written of their day's doings, though some of it he destroyed later because Mrs. Fairbanks thought it not his best. All of the pilgrims mentioned in The Innocents Abroad were real persons. Dan was Dan Sloat, Mark Twain's roommate. The doctor who confused the guides was Dr. A. Reeves Jackson, of Chicago. The poet lariat was Bloodgood H. Cutter, an eccentric from Long Island. Jack was Jack Van Nostrand, of New Jersey. And Moult and Blucher and Charlie were likewise real the last named being Charles J. Langdon, of Elmira, New York, a boy of eighteen, whose sister would one day become Mark Twain's wife. It has been said that Mark Twain first met Olivia Langdon on the Quaker City, but this is not quite true. He met only her picture. The original was not on that ship. Charlie Langdon, boy fashion, made a sort of hero of the brilliant man called Mark Twain, and one day in the Bay of Smyrna invited him to his cabin and exhibited his treasures, among them a dainty miniature of a sister at home, Olivia, a sweet, delicate creature whom the boy worshipped. Samuel Clemens gazed long at the exquisite portrait and spoke of it reverently, for in the sweet face he seemed to find something spiritual. Often after that he came to young Langdon's cabin to look at the pictured countenance, in his heart dreaming of a day when he might learn to know its owner. We need not follow in detail here the travels of the pilgrims and their adventures. Most of them have been fully set down in the Innocents Abroad, and with not much elaboration, for plenty of amusing things were happening on a trip of that kind, and Mark Twain's old notebooks are full of the real incidents that we find changed but little in the book. If the adventures of Jack, Dan, and the Doctor are embroidered here and there, the truth is always there, too. Yet the old notebooks have a very intimate interest of their own. It is curious to be looking through them today, trying to realize that those penciled memoranda were the fresh first impressions that would presently grow into the world's most delightful book of travel. 
that they were set down in the very midst of that historic little company that frolicked through Italy and climbed wearily the arid Syrian hills. It required five months for the Quaker City to make the circuit of the Mediterranean and return to New York. Mark Twain in that time contributed fifty-two or three letters to the Alta California and six to the New York Tribune, or an average of nearly three a week, a vast amount of labor to be done in the midst of sightseeing. And what letters of travel they were! The most remarkable that had been written up to that time. Vivid, fearless, full of fresh color, humor, poetry, they came as a revelation to the public, weary of the tiresome descriptive drivel of that day. They preached a new gospel in travel literature, the gospel of seeing honestly and speaking frankly, a gospel that Mark Twain would continue to preach during the rest of his career. Furthermore, the letters showed a great literary growth in their author. No doubt the cultivated associations of the ship, the afternoon reading aloud of his work, and Mrs. Fairbanks' advice had much to do with this. But we may believe, also, that the author's close study of the King James Version of the Old Testament during the weeks of travel through Palestine exerted a powerful influence upon his style. The man who had recited the burial of Moses to Joe Goodman with so much feeling could not fail to be mastered by the simple yet stately Bible phrase and imagery. Many of the fine descriptive passages in The Innocents Abroad have something almost biblical in their phrasing. The writer of this memoir heard in childhood The Innocents Abroad read aloud, and has never forgotten the poetic spell that fell upon him as he listened to a paragraph written of Tangier. Here is a crumbled wall that was old when Columbus discovered America, old when Peter the Hermit roused the knightly men of the Middle Ages to arm for the First Crusade, old when Charlemagne and his paladins beleaguered enchanted castles and battled with giants and genii in the fabled days of the olden time, old when Christ and his disciples walked the earth stood where it stands to-day when the lips of memnon were vocal and men bought and sold in the streets of ancient thebes mark twain returned to america to find himself if not famous at least in very high repute the alta and tribune letters had carried his name to every corner of his native land he was in demand now to his mother he wrote i have eighteen offers to lecture at one hundred dollars each, in various parts of the Union, have declined them all, belong on the Tribune staff, and shall write occasionally. Am offered the same berth to-day on the Herald, by letter." He was in Washington at this time, having remained in New York but one day. He had accepted a secretaryship from Senator Stewart of Nevada, but this arrangement was a brief one. He required fuller freedom for his Washington correspondence and general literary undertakings. He had been in Washington but a few days when he received a letter that meant more to him than he could possibly have dreamed at the moment. It was from Elisha Bliss, Jr., manager of the American Publishing Company of Hartford, Connecticut, and it suggested gathering the Mediterranean travel letters into a book. Bliss was a capable, energetic man with a taste for humor and believed there was money for author and publisher in the travel book. The proposition pleased Mark Twain, who replied at once, asking for further details as to Bliss's plan. Somewhat later he made a trip to Hartford, and the terms for the publication of The Innocents Abroad were agreed upon. 
it was to be a large illustrated book for subscription sale and the author was to receive five per cent of the selling price bliss had offered him the choice between this royalty and ten thousand dollars cash though much tempted by the large sum to be paid in hand mark twain decided in favor of the royalty plan the best business judgment i ever displayed he used to say afterward he agreed to arrange the letters for book publication revising and rewriting where necessary and went back to washington well pleased he did not realize that his agreement with bliss marked the beginning of one of the most notable publishing connections in american literary history end of chapter twenty seven